0: So I invite you to settle into a little story about where things came from, because when we know where things came from, we understand why they are the way they are. This may be helpful at dinner tables later in the week. A helpful way to think about rabbinic Judaism and early Christianity is as fraternal twins born of the same mother, but destined for different lives. And what you, do you ask, was that same mother? That same mother was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem 36 years after the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, we all know that Jesus and all of his followers were Jews living in Roman-occupied Palestine. So how did Jesus become the center of Christianity? That really has more to do with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus than anything else, sometime between 33 and 35 of the Common Era. You will remember that Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul after his conversion, started his career persecuting Jews who kept alive the Jesus movement after the crucifixion. As a zealous Pharisee, Paul despised the house churches founded by Jesus' followers. This house church model was radical in that it encouraged women to be leaders It was uninterested in the Jewish temple and its hierarchy. And most of all, these very early Christians believed that Jesus would return at any time, triumphally resurrected, to restore Judaism as the world's greatest, most powerful religion. The earliest Christians were Jews who believed the world was ending and would be gone soon. They believed that they would see Jesus in their lifetime. The kingdom of God was at hand. And on behalf of the temple and the Roman authorities, Saul went about persecuting this radical sect of Judaism, disrupting them in any way that he could. That is, until he had a vision of Jesus himself. The Acts of the Apostles relates the story this way. Saul went to the chief priest and got arrest warrants to take to Christian meeting places in Damascus so that if he found anyone there following Jesus, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. He set off. When Saul got to the outskirts of Damascus, he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. As he fell to the ground, he heard a voice, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Saul said, "Who are you, Master? "I am Jesus," the vision said. "I want you to get up and enter the city in the city. I'll tell you what to do next." Saul's companions stood there dumbstruck. They could hear the sound, but they couldn't see anyone. While Saul, picking himself up off the ground, found himself to be stone blind. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. Saul continued blind for three days. He ate nothing, drank nothing, and he changed his name to Paul. Now, after his conversion to Christianity, Paul took about 10 years before setting out as a missionary to spread the faith And from about 47 or 48 of the common era, he was busy until his death in Rome in 64, visiting new Christian communities all over the Greco-Roman world. His travels took him to modern day Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Greece, Italy, and maybe even as far as Spain. We know his travels from his letters, the most famous of which are first and second Corinthians. Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Romans. Paul's followers would imitate his letter writing after his death, adding more to the canon. But I've not forgotten that I said rabbinic Judaism and early Christianity are fraternal twins born of the same mother. While Paul was evangelizing in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the Roman Empire was increasingly unhappy with Jewish uprisings in Palestine. Harsh treatment of the Jews by Emperor Caligula and Emperor Nero had fanned the flames of revolt in and around Jerusalem. The Jewish revolt in which Judean rebel factions held Jerusalem from 66 to 70 was particularly galling to these emperors. In the year 70, Rome retook Jerusalem by force and burned the Jewish temple to the ground on August 30th. From that day forward, there would never be a central temple for the Jewish faith. Rabbinic Judaism sprang from the necessity to carry on the Jewish traditions without the temple in Jerusalem. The year 70 is also important to keep in mind for Christianity, too. The synoptic Gospels, those being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were all written roughly 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death, while the temple was still standing. However, the Gospel of John, the most triumphalist of the four, was written after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. John makes the clearest case for Jesus as Son of God. In John, Jesus is the most at odds with his fellow Jews. He has become the focus of the new religion. When there was no more temple with its Holy of Holies, both Judaism and Christianity had to have something portable to worship. For Jews, it was the Torah. For Christians, it was Jesus Both religions continued to be persecuted under the Roman government, and sadly they became increasingly suspicious of one another as well. Synagogue Jews were not sympathetic to house church followers of Jesus, and the new Christians increasingly turned their focus from Jesus' teachings to his messianic status. The two religions born of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem Would never again agree on what it means to be either Jewish or Christian. At this point, I shall talk, I will leave more talk of Rabbinic Judaism for another day and focus on the peculiarities of early Christianity, the things that made it attractive in the Greco Roman world. As his missionary work took him farther and farther from Jerusalem, Paul encountered a religious landscape that was rich with worship. Most people in the Roman Empire were not monotheists. Most people, unlike unlike the Jews, they worshiped many gods and goddesses. They were quite accustomed to worshiping these deities, both in temples and also at home at small shrines. Much like present-day Hinduism, one could call upon a variety of gods for whatever purpose was needed. In this regard, it didn't seem strange to Greeks and Romans that a god would have a son who would be sent to earth. The more remarkable thing was that the same god would resurrect the son and install him as a god himself. The main disagreement early Christians found with their Greco-Roman neighbors was in the Christian's refusal to worship a variety of gods. The monotheistic insistence that there was just one God and his son, who was also now God, did not sit very well. Even though early Christians were good citizens and respectful of Roman authorities, their refusal to honor traditional gods threatened to disrupt the established religious and social order. In its first three centuries... Christianity generally tended to avoid conflict, growing quietly next to its Greco-Roman neighbors. What really set Christianity apart, however, was its openness to conversion. Because the early Christians, like Christians today, believed in an almighty deity who is motivated by love, they were open to all converts, In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, In Christ's family there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among you, all are equal. Imagine being a Roman slave and hearing these words. Imagine being a poor widow and hearing these words. Imagine being a persecuted Jew and hearing these words. Imagine being anyone without power and hearing these words. You are equal. The amazing thing about the early Christians and Christianity today is how social status should not matter. Race should not matter. Gender should not matter. Education should not matter. Wealth should not matter one's prior religion should not matter. We tend to forget how radical this inclusive welcome is, and we also forget how there are many places in the world where few hear such a welcome. That the early Christians emphasized a God of love who wanted to include everyone was one of the reasons that it flourished in the Greco-Roman world. Greek and Roman gods did not love their followers. Roman officials certainly did not love their subjects. To have an all-powerful God whose highest value was love attracted those who felt unloved and undervalued in their lives. In recent years, there has been much scholarly interest in the early Christian church, and for good reason. The various writings of the Christian scriptures what some call the New Testament, were written within the first hundred years of the Common Era. In fact, the Book of Revelation, which is thought to have been written about the same time as the Gospel of John, dates to the early 90s. So what happened after the first century to so radically change Christianity into what we know it is today? Truthfully, Christianity was so successful in its spread through the Greco-Roman world that it went from being the religion of the dispossessed to becoming the religion of those in power. This transformation did not happen, however, without severe persecution. By the year 303, the spread of Christianity had become so threatening to Emperor Diocletian that he declared an official persecution of Christians that lasted until 311. During this great persecution, the emperor ordered Christian buildings and the homes of Christians torn down and their sacred books collected and burned. Christians were arrested tortured, mutilated, burned, starved, and condemned to gladiatorial contests to amuse spectators. The great persecution finally ended in April 311, when an edict of toleration was agreed upon that would allow Christians to practice their religion, though none of their property was ever restored to them. The rise of Emperor Constantine was likely behind this edict of toleration. Though not yet a Christian himself, Constantine could see how commercial, political, and social advantage could be gained by freeing Christians. In 313, he decriminalized Christian worship with the Edict of Milan, paving the way for his own conversion. Church councils would soon follow that would define Christianity as the state religion, of the Holy Roman Empire. The reason the first hundred years of the Jesus movement is interesting to religion scholars and to us is that it shows us the roots of a religion which became something very different once it gained power and prestige. The stories of the gospel and the advice in Paul's letters show a very different Jesus of Nazareth than do Trinitarian church writings after 325 when the Council of Nicaea was held. Church decisions about the Trinity, virgin birth, original sin, sainthood, and salvation came 200 years after the apostolic age of which I have been speaking. Most of the qualms you and I may have with Christianity are less with the original writings of those closest to Jesus' life and more with later interpretations of his life, death, and resurrection made to fit the needs of the Holy Roman Empire. Jesus as Christ is a later development, and Jesus as the exclusive path to God is an even later development. I suspect you and I are more interested in the Jesus who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, declaring freedom for his people. I suspect you and I are more interested in the Jesus who was a healer and a teacher. I suspect you and I are more interested in the Jesus who spoke to women and tax collectors and thieves. And if my scholarship is right, this is the Jesus the Greco-Roman world of the first century was interested in, too. Saul's conversion knocked him to the ground. He was blind for three days. It was not some distant Jesus who spoke to him. Rather, Jesus saw Saul for the sinner he was. He saw him and he loved him anyway. And when his eyes were opened, so new was his life that he needed a new name. As Saul becomes Paul when his eyes are opened, let us too see the life of Jesus of Nazareth for what it really is and not what others say. Let us enter this Easter week with new ears and new eyes. So be it. Amen.